0: No, I, I, do, I do maintain, I do feel weird about
1: it, though. About putting up a sign. The sign, okay, the sign is... Pitch it to me. <laughs> At this point, I don't know how we're going to find him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If we don't... If he has no online presence, he's not in the white pages. Who uses the white pages? Well, um, <laughs> Ronald Mercer. <laughs> yeah. Ray Mercer. Ray Mercer. Rolling Mercer, there was a Regan Mercer. Regan? Mm.
0: Short of actually turning up at the door and pulling a missing Richard Simmons, this is what you think is the best option. He's hanging about over the bridge that he has
1: to drive onto. At least that we think he lives there. I mean, like, this. (laughs) All right, let's back up. In the two weeks since we've started this podcast, we have discovered a lot more about Richard Mercer's whereabouts. At least we know a few very broad strokes based on us chasing a few leads and following friends of friends of friends who have run into him in the last 15 years. There's nothing solid since 2014 though, which is kind of where things get murky. If we really want to find him, once you can narrow it down to a hundred kilometer radius, you need to get a bit closer to the people. And so my goal is that this at least gets us to someone who knows- Him. Him. Or where he is. Yes. Bonnie was up from Melbourne this weekend to work on our theatre show, so I ordered quite a large sign asking for help in our search. The sign's about the size of a queen bed, so if anyone is in the market for a very unique Doona cover, let me know. We also got some postcards and some other call to action material. And right now we're debating just how creepy and passive aggressive it is to put this sign up in the area where we think he used to live. But there's another debate which keeps coming back to haunt us.
0: Yeah, genuine question. What are you going to do if we find him?
1: We want to record him for the show. <laughs> is, that,
0: is, that, is that what we've, like, I know, I know we do.
1: Yeah. What I would like is, I want to know. There's this whole thing about wondering whether or not Richard Mercer was authentic or not. And that is a question that keeps coming back. I've had a lot like, of
0: people asking me that.
1: And I quite like, it's not that I don't believe him. I just, that, and also even the articles about him, he talks about having this kind of persona. He
0: literally refers to himself as the love God. That's, yeah. that's a, that's a persona and a half. Yeah. I well, want to know if he it. What were you doing? It. Yeah. It was just a job. I like, he would yeah. wake up every morning, do his day and then be like, gotta go to the office. Counsel people all through the night unintentionally. Yeah, and go home. I am worried if I find him, and he's a dick. And I know that I'm I'm fully aware and I've prepared myself. There's been a lot of situations where a lot of celebrities who I love have been dicks. I assume, and I just have to. I just have to run the assumption that they all are. If he was shit, and if he hated his job, then because. Then he's just as bad as everybody who laughed at it, ironically, who laughed at it and who I secretly kind of was like, get over yourselves, I have a genuine love for this show. Yeah. This that's... ridiculous, ridiculous show, but if he thinks it was ridiculous, that shatters it for me. Totally. I need it. I need him to be really genuine.
1: Like we are really searching for sincerity amongst okay. all this, otherwise it is a dismissible thing.
0: Well, what does that make us?
1: It makes us the new love gods. (laughs) I don't think it really makes us the new love gods. But there is a question hanging in the air about us. Why us? Why are Bonnie and I doing this together? Why are we working together for any reason apart from just loving each other's company? It turns out it's really simple. And it's like a work that neither of us could have possibly ever done by ourselves.
0: No. You're using me.
1: <laughs> like that's what like collaboration is, right? Like It's not yeah. like using, it's just like...
0: Nice. It's
1: the only way to make something that you could not possibly do yourself. Mm. So in many ways, like it's not that I'm using it, it's just that I can't do it without you. And I don't want to do it with anyone else. You know what I mean? Yeah. I need to be a you. you need to be someone who... My name is Tom, and I'm making a theatre show with my friend Bonnie, all about love songs and the radio host Richard Mercer. The problem is... Uh he's a pretty hard guy to find. This is Missing Richard Mercer. And
2: um, Richard wanted to get a song to someone that means so much. That <laughs> one just can't explain.
1: <laughs> um we'll call him Amir. Amira and Amir.
2: Yeah, we kind of have to
1: stop speaking to each other. You have to stop communication?
2: Yeah, it's complicated.
1: Well, the circumstances dictate this, I would imagine. Yes,
2: yes.
1: And how Um, does does it leave you feeling, Amira? It's like telling
2: someone that they can't breathe anymore. Hmm. It's very hard. I mean, the circumstances that are between us are just so
0: hard that we can't, we can't even speak to each other anymore.
1: So, so it, was, it wasn't always like this. No. So you have you have those beautiful memories.
2: Yeah, memories. Um, and hope, helped.
1: hope that it will come again. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: I come on, come on. No, it's not meant to be, Richard.
1: I will send your song out to Amir. And is there anything else that you would like to say to him? Bear, I just want to say
2: that you know, whatever we've been through, you've made
1: me stronger. And
2: always, always just about you—you always occupy my every thought the is like telling me not to breathe. but I'm sure I'll
1: find a way to get.: The requested song would be by Mariah Carey, a song that, when it was written, was unaware that it would later be considered a power ballad, a song so powerful that Paul McCartney dubbed it "the killer song of all time," although one suspects he wasn't talking about Mariah's version. The song is huge and the story behind the song is even bigger, and the band behind the whole thing is one of the classic rock tragedies of all time. The band is Badfinger. Badfinger were the first band signed to the Beatles label Apple Records and were set up for greatness. They had the creativity and the sound and the talent to make it. However, they had a real asshole as a manager who would run them into the ground. I'm not being melodramatic there. Badfinger's Pete Ham would specifically name the manager in his suicide note, saying... Stan Polly is a soulless bastard, I will take him with me." This was after countless legal disputes over rights and money and ownership, and fifteen years later, Tom Evans, the other songwriter in the band, would also commit suicide after more court cases and a falling out with his bandmates, dying without receiving any royalties for the song. I told you it's huge and it's this heavy backstory which probably gives this song so much weight and forces musicians to treat it with a kind of reverence rarely seen in the world of rock and roll. No less potent is the song itself and it's hard to ignore the tragic poetry behind the two suicides because the song we're talking about has a chorus that goes... You may not know it to sound like this. You probably know one of the 180 cover versions, and of those 180 covers, music journalism tends to only discuss two of them, and the general consensus in the world of rock and roll is that one is perfect, and the other is the worst. Before Pete Ham and Tom Evans died, songwriter Harry Nilsson would hear the song at a party, and he'd record his own version of it. Up until now, Harry Nilsson was known with a much more folky, charming vibe, especially with his song Everybody's Talking from the movie Midnight Cowboy. But his rendition of Without You, embedded in his album Nilsson Schmilson, brought Harry Nilsson screaming into rock and roll history. And you can't deny that it is freaking awesome. (laughs) ¶¶ Performed with pathos and power and at the top of his range, the musical backing is perfect and each chorus explodes. It is stunning. In the world of music journalism, this is quite simply a perfect performance. At the Grammys, Nilsen won Best Male Vocal Performance, nominated for Best Song, Best Album and Best Engineered Album, Certified Gold, Number One Song in Sales Internationally, Five Stars in Rolling Stone, you name it, this song has it. Badfinger may have teed it up but Nielsen hit it out of the park. Before we move on, there are a few things here that I need to point out. Harry Nielsen originally wanted a stripped back performance of the song, like most of his songs, Nielsen and a piano, and that's it. But at the will of his producer, brought on board the orchestra and the full band. During the recording session, Nielsen is quoted as saying, this song is awful, over and over again. But the one thing that gets me is its placement on the album itself. Nielsen is known for his sense of humour and basically that he can sidestep earnestness, undercutting emotion constantly. That's part of what makes him so great. I'm going to put my money on the fact that Nielsen hated how earnest and tragic this song sounds and wanted to separate himself from the final mix. If you think I'm crazy, listen to the song that comes in next on the album.
2: She drank and pulled up. She put the lime in the coconut. She called the doctor,
1: woke him up and said, dah, dah. <laughs> ain't there nothing I can take us That's coconut. You put the lime in the coconut and shake it all around. For any sense of actual emotion that you felt from one song is slapped out of you immediately afterwards. The artist himself winking at you, saying, You think that was real? I'm just having fun. Which brings us to Mariah Carey. If you Google Mariah Carey's version of Without You, you're going to come across some passionate reasons about why she sucks. Critics at the time continually described Mariah as a kind of lesser knockoff version of Whitney Houston, and criticism since then just got less friendly. Even positive reviews of her album described the song as being overly dramatic, which, I mean, let's face it, it is. Rolling Stone gave it a 3-star rating and then later re-reviewed it, giving it 2 stars. L.A. Times, one and a half. Time Magazine called it perfunctory and almost passionless. Entertainment Weekly says it's a heartless by-the-numbers remake. Tom Reynolds writes the song is a, quote, evisceration. Mariah Carey used the song for her next single the same way that Oppenheimer used uranium to build the A-bomb. Christy Burr writes, I loved the Nielsen song. I thought the Mariah Carey cover was a joke. She was missing the point. He meant it, she didn't. Peter Aspen writes, it's everything that continues to be wrong with popular balladry today. Which seems pretty mean to criticise Mariah for the people who imitated her afterwards, but okay. He's of course referring to the Mariah Carey idiosyncrasies, like her vocal melismas. You know when you hold a note and you flourish it at the end of a phrase, so you go like, yeah, yeah, or whatever, I'm not the, sorry. You know, just like Whitney Houston or, I don't know, Mariah Carey. So if you were doing some light background reading about Mariah taking one of the greatest tragic rock songs and then turning it into a pop hit, you are ready for this song to be just awful. And if you're a Harry Nilsson fan and not one of Mariah Carey's, you would basically be offended that she released her version the same week that Harry Nilsson died in 1994. So after all that, let's hear Mariah's version. thing is, it's really good. Is it really disingenuous? Is it really passionless like the critics described it? I can't really hear how this is an inauthentic performance. Everyone seems to be angry at her for being able to nail this song. It seems easy for her because, well, Mariah Carey can sing. And can sing really well. In fact, fans of Mariah describe this as her most breathtaking song, that it's heartbreaking. Also, that it's her at her most subdued, would you believe? Because she can squeal another two octaves above this, but she doesn't. This is a recording of her holding back. In fact, this is the lowest Mariah sings in her whole career. Listen to her singing down the octave, it's actually quite rare and beautiful. And, oh, man, by the end, she does some uh, astounding flourishes alongside a gospel choir featuring herself. And I'm obsessed with the bit where she screams, no, listen, listen, listen. I love it. So regardless of whatever critics say, this album and the song is a worldwide smash hit. It went seven times platinum in Canada and 12 times platinum in Australia. In the US, it sat at number two for 15 weeks. And then it went to number one for another eight. That is astonishing. Music Box is flat out one of the best-selling albums of all time. So screw the critics. And in the end... What we have in Richard Mercer is proof that people found this song to be the perfect emotional outlet when they're at their lowest. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I don't really know where all this hate from critics comes from. I do have some guesses though, and they're all, well, mostly about rock music elitism. But I want to talk to someone who can help and knows better than me. This residency right now involves
2: me making a lot of noise, basically. There's a bunch of microphones and a bunch of speakers and I'm making feedback and moving around the room and uh, talking about wanting to be consumed by another person and possessed by another person.
1: That itself is kind of like weirdly really about longing and
2: lust. And it's love, de- anyway. It's completely about those things. That's, that's, that's what it's about.
1: This is Marcus Whale. Marcus was once described to me as the Sydney version of Prince. This is someone who is frustratingly prolific. He works across dance and electronic genres, as a singer and a programmer, but he's got a history in classical composition and collaborating in theatre and sound art and art installations. You may know him from the band Collarbones or Black Vanilla, or his solo work, all infected with a healthy dose of R&B sounds. And he runs a late-night show on FBI radio, which isn't dissimilar to Richard Mercer's catalogue himself. All in all, I don't know why he's not making this project instead of me. So, um, well, I had to talk to him.
2: I think what it is about pop love songs in particular is that they often become, by virtue of needing to appeal to a broad range of people and be kind of monumental in scale and intensity, it becomes, I think, a really pure expression maybe of a broader social psyche about desire and so i find them really useful because they don't have any room to be ambiguous or um or be complicated in themselves and in that way they become complex yeah because because it's like this uh this object which elicits um Responses across the board in all kinds of different ways. And I, and I love that because it becomes like a, a little, sort of an egg. I think, I think because, in some ways, of their blankness. Mm. I mean, I think maybe a lot of this has to do with uh, the, the sort of Celine Dion, Jazz Standard type.
1: Yeah, I mean, they are Ricary pretty. pretty type. They are so epic in nature, I suppose. It's
2: like it? epic and intimate. Yeah. You know, epically intimate. You know, and and I think I mean maybe I'm I'm less involved with that stuff now, but I think for me it was the monumentalism that I that I got into, and it's like I, I don't really care if this is from you, like from your authentic feeling, because it will generate authentic feelings across the world.
1: You so you, what you mean like the idea that these songs. May not may not be authentic in themselves, but they the if the reaction is authentic, then it's kind of well, ju- it's just as valuable.
2: Yeah, I think reaction and also performance. Mm. I, I think you know it, it's. I think the the idea of a I don't know tortured artist who is pouring out their feelings uh, is you know valid <laughs> as an archetype, but I am also like so into the potential power of performance uh, as a sensual thing, Mm. you know, and it's not necessarily like a kind of storytelling thing or a a confession, or if it is a story or a confession, it's something that comes out of the body and out of of virtuosic ways of, of performing.
1: Performing that emotion or something.
2: Yeah, well, performing that emotion... Uh, and for it to be true in the moment, mm. you know, and I, I, th- I think the importance to me of that kind of way of performing is the the the, the, the feeling that it generates, mm. and and the energy that it generates,
1: especially the the idea of this artist who's pouring out <laughs> uh, emotion. It's like that, like humans don't have. Like they have a threshold of how much emotion they can pour out. Like an artist, that either has to like dig very deep and like keep scooping out little buckets of love for each performance or whatever. Mm. And like, but perform like the very nature of performing the same song again over time, like that emotion has to change, right? So does that mean it becomes less authentic or it becomes? Well, I think it's,
2: yeah, it's this authenticity thing. Maybe, um, maybe to me, it's 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 like in in every moment, in the moment. Um, the belief, if the belief is total, mm. then it doesn 't matter what it 's about it's uh, that that belief like makes it real and m- you know magical yeah
1: that's beautiful almost it's <laughs> like almost reassuring I need to be- <laughs> um like especially these pop songs, which uh you sort of very often you see kind of um this this particular, the Richard Mercer brand of love songs uh, mm. kind of get dismissed as kind of being vapid. And to a point they are, in the sense you're talking about, they can sort of be about everything and nothing at the same time. Um, but you're right. like You have to sort of find that genuine nugget in there or something. or I also hone think, in.
2: I, 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 yeah, I mean, I, I might backtrack a bit. Like, I, I think, I don't know what it is, but sometimes things feel cynical to me and others don't. Mm. And I'm always searching for, like, s- sincerity and soulfulness in this stuff, which I, I know seems maybe a bit backwards, a bit reversed. Uh, but I, no, I, I think that I, I crave emotional dramatics. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that, that putting that stuff on is something that I feel like I can tell. You know, someone like Celine Dion or Mariah Carey, like they're they're virtuosos of emotional dramatics, and they're people. That's their
1: actual skill, almost. Well,
2: their skill is 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 well. I mean, their skill is singing incredibly well, but like also like being able to through their expression Mm. um, invoke and conjure uh, the the kind of enormity of human feeling and experience. Mm as sort of uh, conduits for what we could in some other potential worlds possibly reach one And, and, you know, none (laughs) of us are inhabiting it or living it really, but we aspire and in our aspirations uh, we can become more than ourselves.
1: Yeah, okay. So, yeah, almost like these songs allow us, they do kind of open up these kind of little little thing that we kind of wish we could do almost. So like like in day-to-day life, we aren't expressing ourselves like that and those songs maybe open it up a little tiny bit? I think so. I mean, this is very idealistic. But yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, even the very nature of listening to uh, Richard Mercer talking to people, um, uh, this is ordinary people calling up and he really kind of pulls emotion out of them and then that kind of gives context for whatever song he's chosen afterwards and then starting those songs have these huge uh, real human drama surrounded by it which may or may not have kind of been there um i know you've been a uh like you're also like a radio host and you've done those kind of Mm. late night sultry voice discussions and things like that
2: well in my capacity as a radio host uh i co-host a radio show with uh jared richards on fbi called sleepless in sydney we are all about the stories that we tell ourselves using music and it's so much more or not even the stories that we tell ourselves but the 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 way that music as as i was saying conjures or invokes our capacity for feeling um so it's not necessarily about like the the true the true story of the song or uh, the circumstances of the song, or even what the song is meant to mean, but rather how this music fills us, swells up within us uh, and so i'm i 'm all about that that kind of richard Mercer love song, love song dedication approach to like mass culture the The beautiful thing for me is is the possibility of like Sharon sharing a moment in her life with Dave and, you know, and, and that song being the, the foil, you know, and, and, and the song's ability to, to, to take their relationship to the next level.
1: Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. When, when calling up a radio show becomes the next level of relationship, that's, uh, I mean, that is, it's, Quite beautiful, but it's also like it's almost very it's almost easy though, isn't it? Like you could call up mm. I mean the thing about radio is that it it requires the other person to be listening at that time in order for that to actually have any kind of emotional gambit or something like that, doesn't it? Like do you find uh when you are like when you're hosting that like I know, I I get maybe a better question is this. Did the show start from anywhere in a sense of irony? And it was like, ha yeah, we're going to play with this kind of voice or this kind of style or this uh, interactional form. And then it became something else?
2: I think at some point, w- when we started the show, Alistair Hill was the co-host with me. And it was Alistair's s- sort of idea. And it was going to be a love song dedication show. But there already was one on FBI <laughs> on Saturday nights. At midnight,
1: <laughs> the perfect—that's the love hour. The love hour. <laughs> I mean, just the very nature of having a love song dedication show—it's it, almost like so cliche that it, in order to do it, it has to kind of start somewhere ironic.
2: Yeah, it's funny. I, I feel like I've been trying to leave irony behind the last few years. Yeah,
1: it is definitely a dying
2: art form or something like that. Well, I, th- I think maybe, or, or maybe a type of irony where it's—it's it's about distancing yourself. It's funny because, yeah, we've definitely come full circle a little bit in looking for sincerity. I know that that's a cycle that is continuing mm, and mm. continually rolling, you know. Yeah, I, and I, I feel like in, in some part of me, like I've always been into pop music since I started being into pop music because of its genuine power over me. Mm. But it definitely was anchored by some sort of irony in the beginning and and yeah, I, I've I've definitely spent a long time trying to extricate myself from from the that kind of display of irreverence, maybe. Because yeah. I I feel reverent about this. I feel it's, it's spiritual.
1: Yeah. It's almost easy to be ironic that you can sort of you you've got the choice to play with that emotion and then at the same time be like I don't I don't really feel that. All right. That's I'm mm. I'm very I'm so sincere that I don't or that I'm not sincere or something like that. It's. It's almost it's distancing yourself is easy, I guess, and actually sure. investing in it is incredibly hard, really, um but also as a result, you do kind of lose some of your audience sometimes, or maybe it's just a different audience well, I think maybe
2: sometimes irony can be elitist mm. or
1: something oh yeah it definitely feels I, I mean, judgmental we
2: can yeah i th- I think the the elitism thing is that we can laugh at people for having sincere feelings about these tacky cultural objects mm. and, and I think it's so much less about preferences and more about uh, social groups and, and signalling your status and things like that
1: hmm. well, I can, weirdly, I can relate this to uh, one of my favourite Celine Dion quotes um, from uh, a lyric from a song uh, which was only, it's one of her albums in French um, from not too long ago, she says uh, Um, If I had the choice to be the boy who's looking up at the stars in Wonder or the bullies who are teasing the kid, I'd rather be the kid. Like, it's like what you can tease someone for like uh, uh, engaging almost being so sincere to the point of like earnestness. But like, Why? Uh, like that is a moment of actual joy and bliss, and then mm. you've got the people who are dismissing it for one reason or another. And like it's like it's a lyric where Slendyon knows her place, like knows what people think of her, knows the criticism, and also knows what she's capable of, and like puts it in the first line of this song. Um, it's quite it's quite like a, I, I love the idea of Slendyon knowing all this kind of stuff and being like I still choose to be this person. I still choose to be the Slendyon that kind of gets teased because it's almost more powerful. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really nice. Uh, well, thanks so much, Marcus, for your time. Um, uh, I, don't, I don't know. How to, I never know how to really end these uh, mm. interviews yet. You know, I'm still learning. I'm no music journalist. Um, <laughs> just some guy with two microphones. Well, no one's a music journalist, really. No. Although I'm slowly discovering that it's pretty fun to pretend to be one.
2: (laughs) Yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can be whatever you want to be. (laughs) Believe in yourself.
1: Of the 180 versions of Without You, 177 of them are completely ignorable. To me, Shirley Bassey's one doesn't compete. Air Supply adds an epic distorted guitar solo which feels so out of place it actually makes me laugh. And Christy Burr, the guy that said Mariah's version is a joke, He does a rendition of it that basically asks you to turn it off before it's finished. I was worried that the reason I liked Mariah's version is purely because I'd started to brainwash myself from listening exclusively to tortured love songs in the past few months. Maybe I've thrown myself out of whack. But if anything, I found there's room in my brain and my heart to love both versions, without any irony. But talking to Marcus reminded me that Mariah's skill is not just melismas. She's a billboard for my emotions when I need it. The music journalism gods may strike me down for saying this, but if Nelson is supposedly the perfect performer, hearing Mariah handle the song so easily makes me ask the question, maybe Mariah is capable of achieving so much more than Nelson never could, that maybe Mariah Carey is better? But if these are all cover songs, what does it take to be original? That's next week on Missing Richard Mercer. And ah uh, yeah, I will put up that sign. And almost immediately we get a clue that takes us one step closer to Richard Mercer himself. Speak to you then. Tell your friends and subscribe on iTunes. If you've got a story to share about Richard Mercer or a love song dedication, or maybe you are, in fact, Richard Mercer, please drop us a line send an email to missingrichardmercer at gmail.com. Special thanks to Marcus Whale. Check out his solo album Inland Sea and his duo Collarbones. I'll link to them in the show notes. Our theme music is by Tom Hogan. Visit missingrichardmercer.com for more information. And thank you for listening.
0: tone, record your V-mail. To end, press hash, or just hang up.
1: Hey, Bonnie. Um, we're really concerned about how sincere or authentic Richard Mercer was. I just spoke to Marcus, he said that maybe it's okay because the effect is sincere. So as long as you took sincere value from it, then it may as well be authentic, right? Maybe that's obvious because it's theatre after all, and all art, I suppose. But... um. Something still doesn't feel right about that. Anyway, let me know what you think. Have a great day, Bonnie.